Hello, everybody. This is Modern Moms Wellness Podcast with myself, Renata, and uh, my co-host, Jenna. And this week, we are discussing, again, the shortcomings of postpartum maternal care. And this is part two. So last week, we or two weeks ago, we discussed a little bit about the statistics um, within countries in America and what they address with postpartum and how they tackle it. Uh, we went into some uh, hormonal fluctuations, just so everyone can kind of get an idea of what your body does. We went into some nutritional facts, like healthy fats and um, how food and stress and stuff can affect your hormones and postpartum uh, anxiety or depression. Uh, so that's what we're trying to tackle is just trying to give you some insight on how, you know, postpartum can be addressed. And so this week... We have a lot to discuss. So, Jenna, why don't you take it off? Yeah, absolutely. So this week we thought we would start off by touching on um, the, the inadequate support for women who want to breastfeed and the barriers to breastfeeding. So I actually I found a great article. Uh, it's called The Barriers to Breastfeeding, Why U.S. Rates Are So Low. And it's on a site called We Have Kids. And um, it says that the vast majority of births in the U.S. are in hospitals, and from the mm -hmm. moment babies are born, hospitals stack the cards against women for breastfeeding success. So too few staff are adequately trained in lactation issues, and their attitudes can discourage the practice. Hospitals also routine, routinely engage in practices that decrease breastfeeding success. Distributing formula and bottles taking the baby away from the mother rather than allowing for immediate bonding time after birth and encouraging moms to have babies sleep in the nursery rather than rooming in with the mother are all factors that decrease a woman's likelihood of breastfeeding. Um, mm. So that was one snippet from the article, but it also goes on to talk about other issues um, with encouraging breastfeeding and also uh, longer term breastfeeding. So anything more than a few months. So these are some things that the article mentioned, but also um, just some other ideas. So negative social attitudes towards breastfeeding, women being questioned when they want to breastfeed for more than a year. Um, mm -hmm. Some people think, you know, wow, a year, like that's such a long time. And, you know, why kind of, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> sort of attitude. Right. I definitely, personally, I got that from um, older women, um, not, you know, not everyone, but um, the women who questioned me, it was kind of um, um, older, like grandmother age. Interesting. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So, but it's all, it's actually recommended to breastfeed by the WHO for at least the first two, two years. Um, so women uh, breastfeeding in public can face stares and rude comments and also smirks. Uh, there aren't a lot of private rooms um, for breastfeeding moms, so it's difficult to go out places if you're breastfeeding and aren't comfortable doing it in public. Mm. Um, and mm -hmm. no mom really wants to <clears throat> breastfeed in a bathroom stall. <laughs> um, so ultimately, a lot of people still see breastfeeding as a taboo, uh, which can be discouraging. And another thing is short maternity leaves and inconvenience of pumping at work which can yeah. uh, disrupt that long-term plan to breastfeed. So, you know, one solution tied to these things, like we talked about in the last episode, is 
something like having um, paid maternity leave for up to a, a year, you know, it's like I mentioned, it's, you know, it's recommended to breastfeed for the first two years, but a year, I mean, that's a solid amount of time um, mm-hmm. to breastfeed if that's something that you are choosing to do. Um, so this would be helpful for supporting moms who, who want to breastfeed. Um, and then there were some other things too, is, I don't know if you want to add anything in now, Renata, I was just going to go on to, um, talk about some other struggles like milk supply and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's not encouraged enough as we were saying, like, you know, uh, when people are going through pregnancy, it's kind of like, well, are you going to breastfeed or not? And how does that help anybody or how does that make anybody feel like confident to breastfeed? And, you know, I believe that there should be lactation consultants throughout prenatal and postpartum. So you at least get some education and then you can make your choice if you're going to breastfeed or not. I believe that also once you give birth, you know, let's say, an hour after maybe let's bring a lactation consultant in there no matter what then Mm -hmm. they can once again provide you with education support if this is the way you're going to go or not because i don't believe every woman should breastfeed but because that might not be their path that they choose but at least having education support confidence instead of people saying like that's really hard to do you know that's this is a natural thing we do so why not try to support that Um, Yeah, so one thing I wanted to address is uh, there's a a bunch of good books out there that can uh, can help with this. And uh, like one of them I really liked throughout my uh, uh, certification was Breastfeeding Made Simple by Nancy Norbacher. And she touches on the challenges as you'll get into, too, uh, such as like milk production um, or supply and and then she talks about the seven natural laws, which I thought was really great information. If you're definitely like gung ho on breastfeeding, it could be a book to help, you know, get you to that point. As well as there's another book I really like called Latch, um, a handbook for, for breastfeeding with confidence by Robin Kaplan. And she addresses specific breastfeeding concerns, allowing you to feel empowered while breastfeeding and overcoming the challenges that you know, you might feel. So I really love those two books with when it came to my certification and I thought they were super informative for new parents. So, yeah. Yeah. A little bit on that. Yeah. I I would also add, like, if you know someone who has, um, has breastfed or is breastfeeding, try to connect to them and talk to them and see if they have any advice. Because for me, so my first birth was a hospital birth. My second was a home birth. Um, so that was a totally different experience. Yeah. Um, with the first one, um, I cannot remember. And it was a while ago, so I might just be misremembering. But um, I don't really remember my OBGYN talking to me about breastfeeding. And yeah. Um, and so I had a sister-in-law who, um, who had just given birth a month and a half before me. So she, and she ended up having some issues. So she talked to me about these issues that she faced and what she did and just some resources for that. So I was thankful to have that. Um, and if I didn't, then I probably would have been blindsided completely <laughs> Yeah. Um, once I started doing it. So 
I, if you do know someone, that's also really helpful. Yeah, and that kind of plays into the fact of like when you're discussing your uh, pregnancy and postpartum with, you know, a mother or some a woman, somebody, anybody. Let's not like attack them for their choices, and let's kind of support their choices. And it was really nice to hear that you did have your sister-in-law to actually give you resources rather than just be like, "Oh, well, you're struggling, so I don't know how to help you." You know, so it's really good that 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 you had somebody to just encourage you. And I think encouragement is like the biggest thing here. So yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess to go along with that, I feel like the the training. I'm not really sure what the the training is when it comes to um, training nurses mm-hmm. lactation support. But I felt like in the hospital, they different nurses seem to have different training. And mm. when it came to positions for holding the baby while breastfeeding, there were some that just felt very unnatural. Um, mm. and it didn't work for some moms, but they didn't work for me. And they were kind of the only ones that were offered. And so I ended up having okay. some issues with uh, my son latching. Kind of, it was on, it was a one side thing where he had an issue with latching. And okay. so I went home and, you know, I was using, it seemed to be going okay in the hospital, but then I went home and things kind of changed. And he started, um, it, there just started to be more pain with it. Mm. The position that I tried that I had been taught in the hospital just wasn't working. So eventually I did reach out to a lactation consultant who came to my apartment and she taught me these positions just that just felt so natural mm. and made it so easy for him to latch because in the hospital they were kind of like, all right, take his head and now you have to position it and you have to yeah. get where it should be. Yeah. But yeah. the lactation consultant told me um, like the, I don't know what you call it, like the little scissor trick where you kind of pinch your nipple and then okay, you yep. make it mm-hmm. easier for the baby to just do it themselves. Find it. Um, and, yep. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting that they're, they're, the training was just different. And um, it, and the lactation consultant actually introduced me to the idea of working with a pediatric chiropractor for latch issues. So I ended up going to a chiropractor for my son and they do like very, very gentle massages in certain places. Um, because when the baby's coming through the birth canal, they can sometimes, you know, end up in weird positions and yes, yep. how they're sleeping too. For some reason, my son kind of always had his head to one side when he slept. So it was tightening certain muscles that were making it hard for him to latch on correctly. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, just having that lactation consultant and going to the chiropractor for him was, those were game changers. Um, but it yeah. seems there's just it doesn't seem like there's, um, you know, the same, uh, training and guidelines when it comes to these things for people who are helping women with lactation, um, which I guess kind of leads into the, the other thing that, um, I wanted to mention was that, um, there's also not, you know, the same knowledge when it comes to, having struggles with milk supply um, or mm-hmm. 
nursing. Um, and you know, some professionals solution is, is to just bottle feed, you know, if you to can't formula feed, exactly. Yeah. So, um, some other things, you know, we can kind of, um, I know you had some good ideas for Galacticogs, um, for increasing milk supply, but, um, some things like just getting enough calories, like making sure you're getting enough food uh, and getting enough liquids, those something yeah. as simple as that can be really important for making sure that you have an adequate milk supply. And, you know, uh, I'm sure we've mentioned this before, but there's not a lot of training when it comes to nutrition for just conventional um, healthcare professionals. So, uh, I, you know, they don't, they don't have that sort of training. So they're not necessarily talking about the importance of nutrition when it comes to adequate milk supply. So, I mean, I would like, you know, everyone to know as a new parent, you know, what a galactagog is. So like, even just to know the term, just so they can be like, well, now I'm going to look up, even if they don't have the cons like nutritionist or a consultant or something, they can at least know, well, these are the types of food, you know, like I give mm -hmm. that to my clients immediately. I'm like, this is the types of foods you should be eating. This is like, I give this list immediately on how to be, how to do these things. Uh, like the first month of, um, of us signing the agreement. I'm like, here you go. Here's all the resources. Let's talk about it every, you know, every, I do trimester work and then postpartum work. So uh, I'd like to gear them up before they give birth to say like, this is how breastfeeding goes. This is what you should be eating. Come to me if you have any questions. Mm -hmm. um, and a few things too is, uh, one of the biggest galactagogues that we have out there is oats. I love them. They're so good for you. And they're also, as we touched base last time, was that they're high in uh, fiber. And fiber is extremely good for the body. It reduces inflammation. It helps the bowels move. It helps like move things as well as produce uh, milk supply and I love oats and it's just they're cheap they're easy like you can put them in literally you can make oatmeal or you can make a cookie or you can make like yeah. uh, overnight oats I don't know like you can make so many things with oatmeal like how's someone not told like oats are the best thing you should be eat or one of the best things you should be eating so yeah yeah and there's there's plenty of other ones too I know some people are sensitive mm -hmm. to oats um, yes yeah even so oats are naturally gluten-free, um, mm -hmm. but they do contain a protein that's similar to gluten. So some people who are highly sensitive to gluten can actually yes. react to oats. Um, so that happens to me. I get very tired um, and I want to oh, well, sleep God. for like three days <laughs> <laughs> and just inflammation too. But yeah, there, there's plenty of other ones if you're sensitive to gluten and oats, yeah. other grains. Um yeah, so let's see, like fennel, I have a whole list here. There was fennel, yes, fennel. through is another good one, um, especially if um, if there's blood sugar imbalances or insulin mm. resistance that might be affecting your ability to produce milk um, because that can be a problem for some women. So goat's through actually helps to balance blood sugar as well. And that's one of the ways that. that helps to promote um, mm -hmm. lactation. 
Um, did I say fennel or did I say fenugreek? So both of those. Both, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Milk thistle, legumes. Did you have some other um, ones? I also want to add in too, like if you don't love fennel, like the bulb, the actual like food that you can eat, you could do fennel seed. Uh, so yeah, that could be something. Mm -hmm. But um, there's stinging nettle. I don't know if you mentioned this. Oh, you did milk thistle, um, mm -hmm. brewer's yeast, uh, ginger, licorice, uh, and then chamomile. And chamomile is also used to potentially prevent colic in babies as well. So uh, that's one reason why I love chamomile too, is you can drink it, help produce your milk supply, also help with like heartburn, any indigestion. And mm -hmm. then you're reducing that indigestion potentially in your baby as well, because mm -hmm. they're receiving that milk supply. Um, and then, oh, and then, you know, just your normal like leafy greens, grapes, bananas, lemon, chickpeas, uh, some nuts like almonds. Um, and then I heard this papaya and papaya mm -hmm. is just like an excellent food for you too. So love papaya. So that's a great one. I think um, it helps with digestion too. I think mm -hmm. enzymes in it that help with digestion, like um, maybe similar to kiwi. So if you're yeah. having issues with digestion, but the colic thing, I feel like, you know, we didn't really plan to talk about this, but that's, that's a really good point because um, sometimes, you know, babies develop colic and it can be related to what the mom's eating. And yeah. I, I don't think that there's there's really enough knowledge around that too, um, and kind of giving a heads up and um, having some things um, in stock, you know, like at home that you yeah. can use to help with that colic because that can really affect bonding between a mom and a baby. And I don't I don't think women are really given that heads up, you know, that this is something that can happen, and you know, here's some resources and here's some things you can do and people you can reach out to if this is happening. Like a nutrition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what I've noticed from my clients and their babies is colic usually starts around like three to four months. Mm. And uh, at that point, you know, they're still not necessarily attempting uh, solids yet or anything like the, or food in general, but uh there is the old wives tale that you could potentially give your baby chamomile, but I'm not suggesting that. I just say, if you know, if you're at your last wits and you want to try something like I've heard that that's been uh, a thing used for years upon years upon years. Mm -hmm. um, just yeah. a suggestion. But uh, there's also one thing I like went really into this too, because of my clients having colic or babies having colic mm -hmm. uh, swaddling, blanket or the swaddling um i can't remember the name of it but let me let me look this up uh there's a swaddling baby colic blanket that i've sent to many of my clients and how i'm forgetting the name of it is you know mysterious right now but uh, it helps a lot to soothe the baby um there's also baby probiotics too mm -hmm which can help. And one thing that is interesting to me is there's garlic is a galactagogue, but it also could cause colic. So yeah. uh, eliminating foods that could potentially cause colic, like caffeine, 
garlic, spicy foods, uh, sometimes mm -hmm. citrus foods. So mm -hmm. those can potentially influence colic in a baby. Mm -hmm. um, I'll find that swaddle someday, <laughs> and I'll, I'll post the, I'll, uh, I'll post the link, or I'll, I'll let everybody know what it is, because um, it's. I've had some customer, some clients uh, buy it, and they said it's worked tremendously. Nice. So I'll get that name of that. But yeah, um, to know. I I just know that there's some moms that I've talked to that their babies had really terrible colic and terrible. actually fuel postpartum depression mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you know the baby's miserable and it's hard for you, you having lack of sleep um trying to take care of this baby like constantly trying to regulate their emotions and try to regulate your emotions at the same time and um it's really challenging if you end up in that situation and you don't have the resources and it continues for a long time and um sometimes moms choose not to have other babies because of experience yeah. that which experience in college yeah that's what they had hoped you know if they had hoped to have more but souring the experience like that is just i feel like it's something that can potentially be avoided so yeah i agree with that and that could kind of uh bring us into that like also support you know how can we feel supported when mm -hmm. you know my baby is is going through a really tough time and crying and then that's causing me to go through a really tough time how can we need support from something and if we don't have a community surrounding us that should be the practitioners that should be the the physicians in the hospital mm -hmm. or the your your pediatric your pediatrician or there should be that community if you don't have a community because not everybody has a family and not everybody has tons of friends and people mm -hmm. around them and surrounding them which where where can we get that from then should be the professionals so yeah. um yeah, yeah we should have resources for for groups and um things like you know church groups i know mm -hmm. not everyone's religious but there are some some church groups and there should be other groups too because not everyone wants to go to a, a church group yeah um, but that is an option i think a lot of churches yeah. do for things like that and there's, I'm seeing it more online support groups. So it's like a virtual um, meeting. Yes. That I don't know how often they're doing it, but that's one way. And, but they're usually there. They also have like a local base too. So if you're local to them, they, they do meetups and stuff like that as well. And in-person um, support groups. So we can we can try to find resources for that sort of thing in our areas but that's something that i feel like practitioners should have is um those resources you know lists of groups and options and yeah you know, volunteer groups you know i think it would be so amazing if there were volunteer groups where after you know like kind of like doula support but for mm -hmm maybe covered by insurance. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Um, that's free, you know, where people can sign up and um, someone comes in and, and supports them at home um, if they don't have anyone else who can come and support them. Yeah, like a pro bono thing or mm -hmm. something. Yeah, because, uh, you know, 
there are the, I do like the idea of the church groups and the community support groups. And like, there are a bunch of uh, mental health clinics that could potentially mm -hmm. be a support system um, or women's health clinics, family health clinics. Um, but I know one thing you kind of were going to touch on last week too, uh, but we, our, our episode ran so long and we were like so impressed with ourselves um, was, prenatal and postpartum massage and acupuncture and uh did you try any of those when you um were pregnant or in postpartum I did some acupuncture postpartum um I never did anything during pregnancy mm -hmm. um because I didn't really have the need for anything I had um no complications in my pregnancy oh, cool. Um, I don't think I did massage. I did physical therapy after my second because I developed, um, issues with my neck and my shoulder, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really do too much, but I know that there's some great chiropractors, um, around me who work with women who are pregnant, um, and, and they're also, usually it's, if they're working with men who are pregnant and in postpartum, they're usually um, trained for pediatric chiropractic care as well. So they're working with the moms and the babies. So um, it's really nice. That is lovely to hear because, yeah, we, I've been seeing a lot more pop up. I have a friend, um, she is a massage therapist and she does prenatal and postpartum as well. And she's spectacular. And um, uh, she's actually, oh, so this kind of rewind a little bit once again when i'm you know signing an agreement with the client another thing i immediately send is like a seven page resource list mm -hmm. uh targeting everything while it be hospitals uh birthing centers um postpartum care massage acupuncture acupressure places um doulas postpartum doulas grieving you know mm -hmm. i have this whole list of all these subjects to touch on and you have i don't say like you have to hire me to get that because i would be more than willing to send that to somebody but that should be once again given to everybody right from the start this is everything in our 100 mile radius of you or of our hospital that you're giving birth mm -hmm. in this is everything surrounding that you can use for your your for you for your liking for advice for support for and once again that should just be a prerequisite <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah, that's just, yeah like so that's one thing i have literally from glens falls which is about i think like an hour from me mm -hmm. uh north to the Catskills, which is about 45 to an hour south, and then some surrounding Western and Eastern areas. I tend to get into a little bit of like the Berkshires because I'm kind of close to the Berkshires. Um, and I do, my boyfriend lives in Western Mass, so I am in that area frequently. Mm -hmm. So I have resources for that area too, because, you know, once again, I could have a client who's bordering New York and Mass and who's like, well, where can I go? And if I'm like, oh, I don't know what you can do in Massachusetts, like, mm -hmm. they'd be like, what? <laughs> Why did I hire you? <laughs> like, So yeah, so it's, I mean, we 
technically hire a hospital to take care of all this. So why aren't they taking care of all of it? Like we're hiring you, we're paying you thousands of dollars to do a natural thing that we do. Yeah. And you can't give me anything? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's it was mind blowing like seeing the difference between having a hospital birth and what that process was like and, and working with a uh, home birth midwife. Like so so different. <laughs> I know this this I don't know if we were gonna touch on this, but I'm actually intrigued to hear like for obviously with the hospital, you call up, you're like, I'm in labor, I'm coming in. With a home birth did you hire people to like, obviously a midwife, I'm assuming, but did you hire like a lactation consultant? Did you hire somebody to kind of join in on those spectrums or did you kind of just go with the flow after the pregnancy? Um, so the, uh, yeah, kind of went with the flow. So I had a midwife and she had a network of other midwives that she worked with. So there was one other woman that she teamed up with who attended births with her. Um, and then, you know, if she's ever, if she was ever out of town or anything, she would let me know who to contact, okay. who would replace her if she couldn't make it. Uh, fortunately, um, she only lived two minutes away from me. Nice. <laughs> so, um, yeah, when I, I had a, a very, very fast labor for my second, um, I basically thought I was maybe in labor at, like, <laughs> at 8 30 at night because I was kind of having some stronger yeah. contractions and I was like this could be Braxton Hicks yeah. like, uh, whatever and um I have a pretty high pain tolerance <laughs> so I was Good like for oh, you. whatever um <laughs> and so I called her I think I went in the shower because I started to feel kind of hot from having stronger contractions and I called her uh I think between 8.30 and 9 o'clock at night and we had just gotten my son to bed and I called her and I was like, I think I'm in labor. I'm not really <laughs> sure. And she's like, I'm coming. I'm just going to come. Like, <laughs> I'm going to make sure everything's okay. So she yeah. showed up and then my daughter was born at 10.40 at night. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, like, I, I had a pretty fast, not that fast. Um, I think it was 12 hours the first time. Um, which isn't too bad, yeah. Yeah, which isn't too bad, but um, the the painful part wasn't that long, um, but my first one. But um, basically, the my I had some family members who were like, you know, you had a really first birth your first time, like just expect that the second can go even faster. So I was already kind of thinking of a home birth at that point, and I was like, yeah. I think I should because I could have easily had my my first one at home um the way that went so I was like I might right. as well have to plan to have it at home and thank god I did because I wouldn't have made it to a hospital but right yeah that was that's so that's like two hours that's yeah. two hours <laughs> and that I find that to also once again like spark some interest in me and, you know, this isn't everybody's experience, but I wonder if you knowing that you were going to be in the comfort of your own home, laboring in your mm. own home, having that option and having the ability to have a midwife come to you, if that helped, like if that made the labor easier, faster, whatever, yeah. you know, like if just yeah. knowing that you were going to be in the safety of your own home. 
and that granted like i said that doesn't happen to everyone there's high-risk pregnancies you need to be in the hospital there are situations where you know something could go wrong and you have to go to the hospital it's not everybody but for these people that can do this i wonder if your brain was just like well i'm in the safety of my own home i'm doing this like Mm -hmm. that you were able to just do it quicker or easier or less painful or who knows but <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Still pain, but in my home. <laughs> where I can... Yeah, definitely more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I think we should have a whole episode on that, just like talking about like home birth and, you know, mm-hmm. and the experiences. Maybe get somebody with like an experience on top of yours that we can all discuss. Um, yeah. But yeah, sorry, yeah. that was a little, a little side note. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just a little little story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to make sure um, um, <laughs> we keep it interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that kind of can I I was going to talk about this, but I we I we went into the nutrition side of things and um I wanted to discuss a little bit of skin to skin. So I wanted to ask on both of your births, did you mm-hmm. do skin to skin right away? Like right baby was born right on your chest. Not with the first. Not okay. at the hospital. Um so he he came out and then he did not go on my chest. Um, someone was holding him. They quickly cut the cord. Um, I don't wow. think they, they waited the recommended, what is it now? Like three minutes, two minutes or something like that, that you should. Yeah. Run. I think you stop letting the pulse, the pulse stop or you, you let the pulse like start to slow down and stop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, that wasn't done. Um, he was brought next to me on this little, trade table thing where I think maybe they weighed him and cleaned him up. I don't know. I don't know exactly what they did. Um, but I remember looking over at him and he, he was kind of looking around. Um, Probably like, he, where's my mom? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, hello. What is this place? <laughs> yeah. Um, but then they brought him over to me. So it wasn't immediate, um, but it was skin to skin when they did bring him over after that. But it was a few minutes. Um, mm. I think I was laying there. I They did a couple stitches for me. So however long it took for them to do those couple stitches and... Um, yeah. And then he was brought over with my first, with my second though, immediately given to me, um, quickly after that tried to latch on or did latch on. And then the placenta was removed. So, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I know this is kind of like, um, you know, jumping topics and whatever, we'll get back to the other stuff too. But I wanted to just touch base on how important I feel skin to skin is for postpartum mm-hmm. mothers. And, uh, uh, you know, regardless of if it's vaginal, instrumental, cesarean, um, skin to skin should be done. So right when baby is born, they should be put right on your chest and uh, they should feel your breath, your pulse, your 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 just you, they should feel you, they just came out of you, you know, like the hospital mm-hmm. is overwhelming in general, and it's very bright, or it's got a lot of loud noises, it's a lot of movement, and uh, it could be very startling for something to, to be, you know, that's the environment they're born into. 
So skin to skin is good because it gets you acquainted right away with your your baby and you. So skin to skin started, essentially it was started in 1979, but I'm sure it's been around for centuries upon centuries uh, because we've been giving birth for that many years. But uh, essentially it was made, uh, or it was started by uh, these neonatalists uh, in uh, by Edgar Ray and Hector Martinez in Bogota, Colombia. And they found themselves without enough incubators within the hospital to care for premature babies. So they started doing research on how they can putting basically the baby right on the chest as the incubator. So I thought that was really different because it's kind of courageous too, because you know, a premature baby, it's, it's, it's very fragile. So Mm -hmm. how can we tackle this, you know, and still give the mother that, that source of, you know, just acquainting with their baby. Mm -hmm. Uh, So basically there's two studies that I read that had like a conglomerate of studies that they researched. And uh, one of them said that when a, when there was childbirth, or I'm sorry, it was vaginal, instrumental, and cesarean. And they noticed that within the vaginal and the instrumental, when they put the baby right on, uh, they saw a lot less complications or issues or potentially postpartum anxiety and depression in those mothers after the fact. When it became cesarean, you're not always, the baby's not always put on you because it's a surgery. So, you know, it's removing your organs and then taking out the baby. And then, uh, so yeah, so, but I still encourage my clients, no matter what they're doing, vaginal, instrumental, epidural, blah, 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 cesarean. If like, they should have the baby right on them right after. And uh, so they noticed that these women that weren't, that were having cesareans, that it was lacking that connection after the fact with their baby postpartum. Um, And then they saw also that uh, this basically just showed that, um, you know, we should facilitate that contact right after because it helps with uh, just that easing into the transition of becoming a mother and uh, their postpartum. And then it also helps infants instinctive behavior so that is one of the things that provides a benefit so some benefits are to show that it improves their respiration their heart rate temperature blood sugar levels immunity and the ability to self-attach to the breast you might know that babies held skin to skin cry less uh they breastfeed a little bit better and have lowered stress hormone levels and have a lowered risk of infection which i thought was very interesting Um, and maybe, uh, they've also, there's also another fact that when holding a baby skin to skin, your breasts will actually increase or decrease in temperature and response to your baby's temperature more efficiently than a warmer can, uh, or by placing that baby in the bassinet right away to warm them. Um, and you know, the baby will kind of adjust to that temperature and then that also helps with uh helping with breastfeeding so i really i encourage everyone to do some skin to skin with their child with their babies and um you know we can't always follow our birth plans but i also encourage a birth plan to just have so yeah it might not be the exact plan that you had in place but at least you have some things that are still in there like i do want to hold 
the umbilical cord on there for longer. I do want to have skin to skin regardless of where I'm at. So, yeah. So those are some things that I find to be really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So I guess we could go back to community. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, touching on uh, one thing that Jenna wanted to bring up was the brain rewiring. And I thought that was um, a really yeah. important thing to discuss, too. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. We could go into that. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like with, with community stuff, um, we we kind of touched on it, but maybe maybe we could get some resources. That, maybe an episode with like some resources and yeah. more specific things around that um, would be helpful. The brain rewiring stuff. I think this is so interesting, and I think because it is, we know it's something that happens. The brain re- rewiring and changes to the brain. And I think women should be given a heads up for it because mm-hmm. it can it can be such a significant change um, that <laughs> that if you're not prepared for it, it can it can end up having a negative impact mm. on your life. Um, so, um, like things like um, your ability to relax sleep and even your relationships, um, which we can talk a little bit more after, but, um, so researchers have found that new mothers experience gray matter reductions that last for at least two years after birth. Wow. So it occurs in brain regions involved in social cognition, which helps mothers solve different adaptive problems related to taking care of their babies. Um, but you know, this change probably in combination with things like nutrient deficiencies and things like lack of sleep can really impact a mom's ability to relax and connect with their babies and even their partners. Um, And, you know, if you add in things like mom guilt and pressure uh, to feel like you should be able to do it all and and not need to take time for yourself and make your baby and feel like you need to make your baby top priority. um, Yeah. You can imagine how this is going to have a negative Mm -hmm. On, on the relationship between um, between parents, but I think that um, so with relationships, there's research that shows that a fifth of couples break up in the first year after giving birth. Um, a fifth. A fifth. Wow. So the most common reasons is a diminishing diminishing sex life constant arguing ah. and lack of communication. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I definitely experienced such a difference in, um, I don't know, kind of like not personality difference, but just, um, like my, um, what do you call it? Priority differences. Yeah. So within those first two years, I mean, you, you are so focused on doing what's best for the baby that it can put other relationships kind of on, on the back burner because mm-hmm. um, that's what feels like the most important thing. And I think that, you know, couples should be prepared for this and understand that it, it does change. Yeah. <laughs> if divorces happen within that first year because there's so many changes. Um, I mean, these, it's definitely a learning experience and uh, opportunity for growth in your relationship. And I think that it's, 
yeah, couples should be prepared for this and to know that it's, it is a normal part of, of having a baby and having to change your life and change expectations in each other. Um, and, and women, because they're the ones who are giving birth and they're the ones recovering. Sometimes men, the, their husbands or their partners need to, um, take care of other things, you know, they're, they're not depleted the way that mothers are and and men generally are more resilient, um, to stressors like that. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just hormonally, um, so they're not as prone to having, um, like adrenal insufficiencies (laughs) from long periods of stress and hitting that burnout. So it can be important to, have that sort of thing in place um, where you talk about these expectations and what you can do to have more support from your partner. And so that's also, you know, a shortcoming for postpartum care because couples aren't really um, told about this or not prepared for it. And, you know, there's kind of general, I don't know, probably general things said, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you know, gonna change and yeah like that doesn't help <laughs> anyone <laughs> no more sex sorry <laughs> it's like okay I'm getting exhausted first of all and you're not telling me anything like oh yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah 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 I um I did not know the gray matter uh development within the brain I knew that there were like immediately after birth there are connections but that began to form between numerous, or I'm sorry, between neurons uh, at an incredible rate um, of over 1 million per second. These connections called synapses, tiny gaps across which uh, nerve cells can send impulses or messages are formed with every interaction, every sensation the baby experiences. So I knew that. So on top of that, when you're, you're developing these synapses that are you know, in connection with what the baby is experiencing and you have this gray matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're just, you're, you're basically tackled by a linebacker, like, (laughs) you know, and, Mm -hmm. and as you said too, like estrogen is naturally emotional. Like we are emotional beings as women. Mm -hmm. And, uh, as we said last, episode you know our hormones are all fluctuating and how do we deal with all of it so um that brings me into a question of could we offer maybe three therapy sessions that are like maybe mandatory to elaborate on how to communicate how to discuss these things how to Mm. i don't know just any of it just communication I mean if I know when I'm potentially fighting with my partner there may be a lack of communication going on which is and I'm I don't have kids so like you can only imagine when you're focusing on one two three kids the communication barrier is there already like you have that you're you're focusing you're putting all your energy into everything else so maybe three two one even one mandatory mental health screening between your partner and you Mm-hmm. with somebody a professional and given just yeah just some 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 
uh, advice or somatic training or ways, other ways to communicate rather than yelling or letting your, you know, because that could also happen. You just have a, 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 a lighter fuse that's just going to, just going to yell. At, you know, I just wish that these options were there. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely consider myself like a very patient person and mm -hmm. <laughs> chill. And so, yeah, you are. Very so like going into motherhood and having these like feelings of anger and, you know, yelling, it's just, it feels, it's, yeah, it just, it happens to everyone. <laughs> yeah. Even people who are patient and chill because like there's, all these changes that are happening to your, your brain and your body. And it's, it's difficult to regulate yourself and regulate your baby. And, <laughs> and then on yeah. top of that, trying to maintain a relationship. And so I, I, I totally agree that there should be some um, insurance covered therapy sessions, because that is something that a lot of people they don't go to therapy because their insurance does not cover, it, cover it, which is mm -hmm. horrible that that's even a thing. It's like your insurance will cover it if you have like a mental health crisis, but like it won't help you to prevent it. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Well, and that kind of also builds on like the prevention in general. Like we need mm -hmm. the prevention of it in general. So then, you know, you're not at this breaking point and having a mental breakdown and a panic attack every freaking day or whatever. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. There's, there's national organizations and online organizations out there. Like there's the U S department of health and human services, women's health, and then the mental health America, they could give some advice on that. There's also like postpartum support, international online meetings, smart patients, postpartum community, and what to expect postpartum depression discussion forum. So there are things out there nationally and online that can help you with this. But, you know, once again, am I paying out of pocket or is this free? Are they going to give me the resources I need and want? Mm -hmm. So yeah. these all are good resources. And then there's the La Leche League for breastfeeding and breastfeeding uh, complications. Mm -hmm. And they tend to have a, a sanction, um, I don't know if that's the right word, like a sanction or something, or a, a sector, I guess you could say, in a lot of regions of states. So La Leche exists throughout each state, their own organization or own sector in each state. Mm -hmm. uh, so that could be something. Um, but yeah, mandatory mental health. <laughs> like, yeah. mm -hmm. Since day uno. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's um, it's great for, for both partners too, because, um, men can also, or a partner who did not give birth can also experience postpartum depression because of all the changes. And, right. um, sometimes, um, the partner can feel like their, their problems are insignificant compared to the, the one who gave birth, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. so they bottle things in and, you know, um, I think generally speaking, men, um, aren't, um, it's not as common for men to be vulnerable and express emotions. Mm -hmm. I feel like things are kind of changing in our generation, but still, I think that is 
still kind of an issue. So just bottling things up. And I think having a counselor come in and just um, being in a place where they can talk about these things and work through them and, and, you, you know, get to the root of why something's happening, because there's usually something going on deeper than what's being expressed. And, you know, you're screaming about the little things, but there's probably something much bigger going on. Um, and so, yeah. And, you know, I'm sure this could happen with a lot of people too, is we suppress a lot of trauma that could potentially happen in our earlier days before pregnancy and pregnancy can kind of bring out trauma that we had Mm -hmm. suppressed years ago in both men and women or whomever, you know, and I think that that's one thing too, is, is addressing these traumas and talking to people and the vulnerability of, well, this might be bringing something out. So hopefully there's a way to discuss this, like what, you know, what is going on within our brains during that time too, of like, is this bringing out a trauma or triggering, triggering stuff, you know, lots of things can be triggered. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I think another thing that um, with postpartum care that women needs to be given a heads up about is that motherhood is, it's like a spiritual journey and you mm-hmm. do not until you become a parent, do you realize how much stuff you need to unlearn? <laughs> like, you know, based on the way that you were raised or things, traumas that have happened in your life, there's, you know, you've been programmed a certain way yes. your whole life and then you become a parent and you kind of realize there's things that you want to do differently. And it's, it can be really difficult to, to navigate how to unlearn these things and relearn new things, kind of like the, um, the idea that there's, um, there's a lot of people now who, who are like reparenting themselves as they're trying yeah. to parent their children. And it's really difficult. And I think it's really amazing that this is happening. I think, you know, the, the conscious parent movement. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's, an, there's an awakening. Yeah. And I think that's so great, but it's, it's very difficult. And I think um, giving, being given a heads up about that would be really amazing because I think uh, generally speaking, women don't, look for these resources until after they've given birth and they start right, experiencing right. these things. And it would be nice to have these, these, um, these tools before so that they know what to do when they're, when they're struggling. Um, and yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. really important. <laughs> it can, it can yeah. definitely prevent a lot of, um, a lot of feelings of, of guilt and shame about what you're going through and, and just know that it's, it's, um, it's, there's, there's ups and downs, you know, it's the idea Mm -hmm. that two steps forward and one step back. It's when you're relearning, you know, when you're reparenting yourself basically and unlearning these, these things that you've been, you know, programmed, conditioned to do most of your life, it takes a while to create these new ways of thinking and these new habits and mm-hmm. ideas to just stay consistent because that's what's gonna what's gonna end up with the results that you want. 
Yeah. I'm very open and honest about my therapy journey because I feel like if that helps somebody, you know, go to therapy, then that's great because I really, really, really like, I, it's been a changing, it ch- it's changed me dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did it because I, I was turning 30 and I was like, you know what, I think this is the best time to start learning. So I've been in therapy for three and a half years and it's somatic. It's a psychosomatic therapist. And uh, essentially I, you know, we don't really talk like we do, but we talk, I tell her what's going on or things that I've suppressed or things that I've gone through. Um, and we feel it within the body and we learn how to regulate your my nervous system and how to um, kind of come at situations that are very triggering to me in a different way. And uh, I mean, I I feel if you've known me, you potentially could tell a difference. You know, I think I I think so. But I think so, yeah. I, yeah, and uh, you know, I used to be a very like you know <sighs> like type of person where I would just la- you know lash out or become very angry or I I lost patience very easily. And now I I try to be as go with the flow as I possibly can. It's extremely challenging to let my control go because I've been controlling my entire life. I've controlled my life. I control people around me sometimes. It's it's hard. Mm -hmm. And I did this at 30 because I knew I didn't want this to transition onto my child. I knew that if I started now that I would be able to become a better person for my kids when I have them. And I was like, 30 is the best time to do it. It's a new decade. I was going to say century. <laughs> it's, a new, it's a new decade. Like, you know, I want kids in my mid to late 30s. So I was like, this is the best time. And one thing is I used, I, I'm a very big hypochondriac. I get so nervous with being sick and having pains. And, and I was like, I can't put that anxiety on another human being. It's challenging to some people around me already Mm. so imagine if I birth a baby and I'm like what's going on with them 24 you know like they're gonna be like hysterical so I was like I gotta do this now because I don't want to make my baby have that same no one made me feel that way but have Mm. have that same trauma that I gave myself growing up so Mm. so yeah so highly suggest therapy regardless but I really do feel that couples need it as a a a lifeline for when they give birth but um but that kind of brings us into like you know just family and friends I think we were talking about a lot of that but insurance so um Mm. what's going on with insurance and uh one thing that uh, I know I touched on was I'm a doula. We all know um, I do birth and labor or labor and birth and postpartum doula work. Uh, and one thing that uh, doulas do is they're trained to be an emotional, uh, physical and informational support system for the parents or the mother or whatever, and to kind of create a healthy and and or whatever happens, a good experience because birthing is can be very traumatic. 
so basically, you know, within my certification, I did Dona International. It was very long, very challenging, very gratifying. Um, but this is one of the first doula trainings and certification programs out there, organizations that are out there. And, uh, you know, basically it's just like one thing that we uh, want to also incorporate is is advocating for the parents and the mother. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean I speak on anybody's behalf because I don't do that. That's not a part of it. But it's basically just amplifying the mother's voice. So I think that incorporating a doula or a person that is knowledgeable in birth and on labor and postpartum work to be there as an advocate and kind of tell them, you know, you can say no if you want to is extremely important. And uh, so not having the mother or the parents feel dismissed or ignored or not heard, uh, you know, these are huge decisions. We shouldn't feel pressured to make them. Um, for instance, I have had clients who uh, don't want Pitocin and doctors want to push Pitocin on people. And that, you know, I sit there and I'm saying, if this is not something that you want, you speak up, you know, like you let them know that this isn't what you're looking for. If you want to labor at home to say it, you know, like this is something that you want. So I, I think that's a big thing is having someone near you that can advocate for you during this. Um, also having a doula, uh, there's many studies out there now uh, since doula work started. And, you know, once again, doulas have always been around. They just weren't necessarily called whatever. Like, they've always been around, though. There's always been women in the community that have worked as the, these types of roles. But um, having this type of person next to you uh, has proven to con – continuous support has uh, proven to support – or I'm sorry, has proven to show that you're more likely to have a vaginal birth and less likely to use any pain medication, epidurals, and have negative feelings about childbirth, do any like instrumental vac vacuum or forceps assisted birth and cesareans. In addition, uh, their labors were shorter by about 40 minutes, which, you know, give or take, that's significant. And their babies are were less likely to have a low APGAR score at birth and, um, you know, with doula work helping, they help create a positive atmosphere while pregnant and uh, as well as in the postpartum. So, like, basically, if you're having a runaround with your children, I can come in, I can cook clean, talk to you, be there mm -hmm. for you, be a shoulder to cry on, um, run light errands. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of studies out there now showing that these types of support systems can be beneficial. And this kind of brings me into the topic of now in New York State, I'm not sure if this is everywhere, but in New York State, CDPHP is offering a reimbursement to doulas, or to, I'm sorry, to parents that use a doula for up to $1,500, which is a significant amount of money to be reimbursed. My services mm -hmm. are less than that. So that's really great. And then also Medicaid has opened up the uh, the the talk of 
having a program that engages doula stakeholders to develop and implement the Medicaid doula services. So this is an attempt at covering doula services, labor, birth, and postpartum. So we're getting there, I feel, with slowly by slowly, <laughs> or, you know, getting there to be able to have these options available and be reimbursed for them rather than feel pressured and not have the money and having to save and scrounge for somebody to, to, to just be there to support you. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I just wanted to touch base on that and like how in New York state they are changing that and, or trying to change it. So. Yeah, that's great. I feel like um, these services, if they're, doula support plus other things, you know, like the counseling, if they're paid for by insurance, if insurance companies uh, can recognize that these things are so helpful and preventative for so many different issues, I think that 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 would be amazing if more of these things could be paid for and people weren't left to try and figure out how to pay for them out of pocket because that's just not possible for so many people and then they're left feeling like they can't really do anything because they don't have money to do it so with that being said um we just want to thank everyone for listening in on you know the second episode of or the part two of episode uh the shortcomings of postpartum maternal care this is an extremely important topic and we hope that we gave you some resources and some um some insight on options that you can potentially use before and after primarily after since this is postpartum postpartum is really neglected so we hope that you know this gave you a little bit of advice and options that you can take and use in the future uh so yeah so i'm renata and this is jenna and we just want to say thank you for tuning in you can find our episode on um spotify Modern Moms Wellness Podcast, and then Apple Podcasts, and the RSS link in our bio, uh, which is on our Instagram, Modern Moms Wellness Podcast.